Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. The military, there were actual leaders that had been there that had done that. They, they had experience. They wanted you to succeed. They didn't just want to be heard and want you to respect them. They wanted you to be the hero of the story. And that really resonated with me. And so a lot of guys join the military thinking, oh, I'm going to go kill bad guys. I'm going to go kill people and shoot people. I think that's the opposite mindset in the special forces. I think the mindset is I'm going to help people. You can only look forward and you can't look behind. Like you don't have time, you know, because you have that next mission and it's coming up and you've just got to reset your mind and focus on the task at hand. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Jason Van Camp. I wanted to have Jason on the show because he has such a fascinating background that, honestly, we can all learn from. So he was recruited to West Point, then worked in Special Forces, then got his MBA. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to leadership and helping people, and now he's helping the New York Jets reach pinnacle levels. So we covered a lot of ground in this episode, like how to mentally deal with war, what lessons translate into civilian life, and a lot of other things that you're going to find very, very actionable in your life. So please enjoy this conversation with Jason Van Camp. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I am super excited to have you here. I had the pleasure of having your friend uh, Kevin Flake do a keynote for one of my uh, private mastermind groups. And he said, you got to have Jason on the show. So if he said, I got to do it and you guys are military people, I'm going to do it because you carry guns. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin Flake is such... An unbelievable stud. He, this guy's he's he's amazing. I think a good place to start would be when you were recruited to West Point to play football. When I think about West Point, you know, I've got this vision of Tom Cruise and Taps. How far from the <laughs> truth is that? And and why West Point? Why did you do that? Why'd you choose that? Yeah. So. 
Um, it wasn't something that I grew up wanting to do. It wasn't like my, my lifelong dream or vision or anything like that. Uh, I guess when I was in high school, my history teacher was sort of like pretty cool guy. And I really enjoyed history is one of my favorite classes. And, and uh, he just kind of asked the group like, Hey, what are you guys going to do after you graduate from high school? And when he asked that question, to the class, I thought to myself, I, I don't know. You know, like, I have no idea. I haven't even given that one second of thought. And I looked around the room and everybody had their hands raised and the teacher went by individually one by one. And people were like, I'm going to go to Ohio State University. I'm going to study mechanical engineering. And then I'm going to do this. And I was just like, man, my mind is blown. Like you, you have your, your path already set. You already know what you want to do. Like I'm going to go to Virginia Tech. I'm going to go to the University of Virginia. I'm going to go to, you know, all this stuff. And shoot, like, I didn't even know what mechanical engineering was when I was in high school. I was like, what is that? You know? And so it kind of inspired me a little bit. It kind of scared me. And I said, I have to get my, my stuff together. And I thought, what, what do I love doing? And I, I looked at playing sports as an opportunity to go to college and potentially even get a scholarship. And, um, I started really focusing on that and I started playing uh, football and lacrosse and track and field and everything. And, and I was really good at all three sports, but particularly in, um, in football as the captain of the team and everything. And, and my junior year, we, uh, we nearly won state. We came really close and I started getting college recruiters sending me letters and calling me and so forth. And I thought, well, here it comes. I'm going to play legit division one football. I'm going to go to Florida state. I'm going to go to USC. You know, this is my path. And my senior year came and I played really well. We didn't have a great season that year. We lost a lot of players from the year before kind of disappointing, but it is what it is. And a lot of these recruiters started coming by again and they were like, well, we thought you were a lot bigger, you know, like you're a middle linebacker and you're only, six foot, 190 pounds, you know, like we're kind of looking for bigger guys. And, uh, I was really disappointed. And, and a lot of the big schools that I thought were going to recruit me <laughs> ended up not recruiting me at all. So the West Point recruiter, he was very, very aggressive. The guy's name was Greg Gregory. He called me all the time. He came to my house. He had dinner with my family. He like, you know, he was just really aggressive and he kind of planted the seed in my mind that, I could go to West Point and I could play football there and then I could be a, a military guy. In what ways did West Point differ from you than the Army? Yeah, so I found that my West Point experience was the complete opposite of my military experience, my experience in the Army. And I think when I first went to West Point, I was, you know, uh, just you know, 18 years old. I was pretty immature. I hadn't experienced the world yet. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I hadn't had any background whatsoever in the military. You know, I didn't know how to march in formation or salute or put on the uniform correctly. I had no idea, you know? And uh, I was also kind of my personality is I'm an individual and I'm a rebel. You know, that's just kind of who I am. Like if I see something wrong like I'll stand up and fight. In the military, there were actual leaders that had been there that had done that. They, they had experience. They wanted you to succeed. 
They didn't just want to be heard and want you to respect them. They wanted you to be the hero of the story. And that really resonated with me. If we could fast forward a few years, you became a ranger and you did a tour in Korea at the DMZ between South and North Korea. Could you describe what it was like to live in that specific area of the world? I loved my time in Korea. I spent a year there. It was my first duty station. And I was at Camp Giant, which was in Munsan, South Korea, which was part of the Kurahis, which were up there by the DMZ, you know, really, really close up there. And I had lived in Russia two years prior to going to Korea. So I had some experience in uh, foreign countries and then living in foreign countries and communicating and understanding cultural differences and things like that. And so I kind of had a, I guess, a, a one up on a lot of guys. Uh, Korean, I found, was a fairly easy language to learn. I felt like the Korean people were uh, very honorable. They were very receptive. You know, in this culture, they aren't very confrontational. And I'll give you an example. My Humvee had gone down. And we had to take it to the shop, to the mechanics, and get it fixed. And mechanics were all South Koreans that were fixing. And uh, I went in there with my interpreter, and I said, Hey guys, like this is, you know, my Humvee, this is what's wrong with it. I think this and that. And they said, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I said, hey, uh, I need this back in like two weeks. You know, so if I come back here in two weeks, will it be done? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No problem. No problem. Okay, cool. So I come back in two weeks and it's not done. It's like not even close to being finished, you know? And I'm like, hey guys, what's going on? You said you'd be ready to go. Like I, this is the day I told you I was coming back. What's, what's the deal? Oh, so sorry, sir. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. Okay, well, if I come back next week, is it going to be done? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, come back the next week. Same thing. And I finally was like, what the hell? You know, and I talked to a Korean Katusa, which is a Korean augmentee to the United States Army. So they take rock soldiers, Republic of Korea soldiers, and they uh, send them over to the U.S. Army to be kind of liaisons and interpreters and things like that. And my guy was a specialist Jew, and he was awesome. He was amazing great soldier. And I was like, what's going on? And he said, listen, it's, it's different. You can't speak to them like this. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you have to say it like this. And so we went back down to the, to the shop and he said, you cannot fix this vehicle in one week. Correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We cannot fix this vehicle. And I was like, well, what am I saying differently? And specialist Jew was like, well, you can't ask them a question uh, like that in that way, because they they feel that they're going to offend you if they say anything other than yes. So you have to phrase the question in a way where they can say yes to your no. Does that make sense? And I was like, it does. That's yeah. crazy. You know, and, I was, and that's kind of how the experience was over there. There was a lot of protests when I was there. Unfortunately, there was a situation where we were on a training mission and, and my friend's unit, it was an engineer unit. Um, they had accidentally killed two young girls walking to school. They were, they were walking on the side of the road. And as you know, I mean, I'm sure you've been to foreign countries that a lot of times the traffic rules and the way that they drive, and mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy. You know, it's almost like there's no rules. And when we were driving, we noticed that people would just walk literally right, right off the road. You know, there was no sidewalk. There was no distancing. And so uh, these two girls died and there was some huge protests and 
Koreans were saying at the time, you know, Yankee, go home, get out of South Korea and things like that. So that was kind of my experience with Korea, which I really enjoyed it. Um, but it was a different culture, sure. So special forces are the people that the army calls in to get the job done um, when they can't or when they want a specific, you know, more surgical approach, let's say. So you guys are the best of the best. How would you describe the mindset of a special forces person? It depends on the person, right? But I think overall, the mindset of a special forces operator is one Let's get unconventional with things. Let's think differently. Let's take a different approach to how it's always been done. You know, you heard that quote, like, this is how we do it because this is the way it's always been done. Like, that's uh, the bane of, of the, uh, the special forces, like hearing statements like that. You know, so anything unconventional, anything inspirational is, is definitely uh, a way to go about it. And the motto of the Green Berets is de oppresso liber. And then in Latin, that means to liberate the oppressed. And so a lot of guys join the military thinking, oh, I'm going to go kill bad guys. I'm going to go kill people and shoot people. I think that's the opposite mindset in the special forces. I think the mindset is I'm going to help people. And that's how I would describe the mindset of a, of a Green Beret. Okay. You know, I want to switch gears a little bit and I want to talk about what being on a mission is like. And when I have a busy day, you know, my brain can be working all night long processing the day. The, when I think about what it might be like for you when you're out in combat with the adrenaline of fighting in places like Iraq, how in the world have you trained your mind, if you have, to be able to function properly just with the basics, like being able to sleep at night without that going through your head if it doesn't? But maybe just unpack that a little bit and speak to that point. No, that's a great question. And I think it's a hard skill to master. You know, and I find myself living in a way right now where I'm like, how? Why is it so difficult for my wife, you know, when my kids wake up in the night, like five or six times and she like in the morning, she's like, oh my God, I can't sleep. I need to sleep. How are you doing this? And I'm just like, well, I guess I'm used to it. I guess I've, I've gone through this and I've had this experience. So it's not like super difficult. It's not enjoyable, but it's not, you know, I'm not going to, it's not going to crush my spirit or my soul. Like I'll get through this. And, um, and I think it's that mindset of just understanding that you can only look forward and you can't look behind. Like you don't have time, right? You just don't have the time to sit and think and contemplate about everything that went poorly, you know, because you have that next mission and it's coming up and you've just got to reset your mind and focus on the task at hand. And some guys are really good at it and some guys aren't. And the guys that aren't, they learn it pretty quickly. You know, what I found in the special forces, when I was on missions, when I was in combat, uh, no matter what happened, like I really didn't lose sleep. You know, even when like, for example, we went on a mission, it was the toughest one I've ever been on. It was August 15th, 2007. And, uh, we were up against like an Al Qaeda battalion and we killed nine guys, captured 14 guys. Uh, my team sergeant was shot 
and he was, he's okay. And we medevaced him and he didn't return to combat. And my, uh, my 18 Charlie, my engineer sergeant, he was shot in the head and I was the first to get to him. And I held his head together with my hands, you know, and, and ultimately he, he passed away on the, on the bird to the, uh, trauma facility and, and country. And, uh, my mind was racing, man, like after that mission. And I just felt terrible because I was the commander and anything you do or fail to do as a, as a commander is your responsibility. And it's kind of like this death is on my hands. This is on me, you know? And, and, um, I just thought, you know, the guys are dependent on me. We've got to continue going through this deployment. You know, we've kind of, we've got to continue fighting because if I lose my focus, then more guys will get killed, you know, and I owe it to them. They are counting on me to step up. And, uh, I didn't know how I was going to sleep that night, you know, but I slept pretty well, you know? And, um, I think that's just kind of who I am as a person, just internally, like understanding that I guess having that confidence that you're doing the absolute best you can and you can control what you can control, you know, having that faith also in, in a religion, like in your, in your God, that there, things happen for a reason, you know, and I think also in the special forces, there's a certain mindset that it's not, we don't train until we get it right. We train until we can't get it wrong. You know, and so that's, that's, I think, a big component of that. Okay. After you left the Army, you went on to get your MBA at Brigham Young. In what ways do you think your Army training helped you in the world of entrepreneurship? And, and maybe in what ways do you think it didn't? In the military, communication is vital. And so we communicate very quickly, you know, rapidly with each other. If I send you an email... For example, like, by God, you're going to get back to me within 24 hours or there's a significant problem, you know, mm. like there's, there's something going on in the civilian world. That's not the case. Like you send an email. Sometimes it takes two days, three days, a week, two weeks, sometimes three weeks to get back to me. It doesn't mean that someone's blowing me off or disrespecting me or, you know, they, they're not interested. It just means that they're busy and that's sometimes how long it takes somebody to get back to you. And so I've seen a lot of military guys, special, especially special forces guys saying, ah, oh, I sent him an email two days ago. I haven't received a response yet. He's not interested. No, that's not the case. You know what I mean? Like, just wait, just be patient. He'll get back to you. And then not being so aggressive. So, uh, you know, I feel sometimes that, the military guys, when they come back and they're in the civilian world, it almost feels like they're, they're being so aggressive as if they're trying to fight someone uh, virtually, you know, via email or text message and just very blunt to the point. And I've learned to put a lot of fluff in my communication, some exclamation marks, you know, to show you that you're excited and a lot of thank yous and a lot of, you know, uh, positive remarks and things like that. Uh, the ways that it helped me to start a business, my experiences in the special forces, I think number one is, you know, just, just never quit. I think that if you never quit, you'll never lose because there's no time limit on, on business. You know, as long as you're grinding and doing well, like you'll, you'll get it done to think in small teams. Like we operated in, in 12 man ODAs, 12 to 14 man ODAs, operational detachment alphas, A teams, in combat. And that's sort of how you're supposed to run a business as well. Like you don't have these large 1000 man conventional units. You have just a small team 
And you have to maximize the skills and the effort of those people on the team uh, for your own benefit, for your own success. I think leadership certainly is probably the, the number one thing is knowing how to lead people, to inspire them, to set a vision and go after that vision and then pivot when you need to. Because in combat, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. You know, you're going to have to figure out a different strategy as soon as you get into contact because on the battlefield, the enemy gets a vote. And that's kind of the same thing in business. Like the enemy gets a vote. How did you wind up working with the New York Jets? That was a great story. So I was at BYU and getting my MBA and they gave us an opportunity to launch a business to compete against other students. Um, and I started Mission Six Zero. And I needed to go find some clients. And I thought to myself, how cool would it be to have an NFL client? Why not? You know, and so I Googled a list of NFL phone numbers, front office, you know, that sort of thing. And I just started going through the list alphabetically. You know, Arizona Cardinals, Atlanta Falcons, Buffalo Bills, Carolina Panthers. And as I went through the list, I started to gather more and more information. We call this market research in the in the business world. So I started learning about who I needed to talk to with the organization, like who these people are, you know, what are their backgrounds? Uh, what other types of companies like mine have they hired before in the past? What, you know, this whole thing. And, and uh, when I got to the New York jets and, and, you know, I was going through the list alphabetically, so I guess about halfway there. So I felt pretty confident. I knew who I needed to speak to and what I wanted to say. And I got in touch with somebody, uh, named Dave Zott and he's still up there at the Jets right now. He's a great friend of mine and he was an all pro guard for the Chiefs and he played for the Jets as well and uh, just told him what what I was all about, what I believed in, what our company did. I was very honest about, you know, we haven't worked with anybody before and we just kind of built some rapport and we hit it off and this is something that you learn a lot about in the Special Forces is kind of building rapport and, you know, uh, getting led into the G base, the gorilla base, you know, uh, and, and Dave said, you know, Jason, here's the thing. I like you. I'm not going to hire you and our company or, you know, our team's not going to hire you as well. Our organization is going to say no, just so you know, but we're going to give you a shot to kind of practice and, you know, come up to the, our facility in Florham park and you have to pay for your own flights and hotels and everything else. And we'll give you a chance. You can pitch to, uh, the head coach and the GM and some of the coaches and we'll see how it goes. And I said, absolutely, Dave, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. I'll see you there. And so I called my team. I told them what was going on. They were fired up. And I just said to them, I said, listen, we're going up there and we're winning this contract. That's it. No excuses. There's no win, but, or win if. There's just winning. We're going to win this contract. I was just so confident. I knew it was going to happen. So we went up there and uh, on the way to the compound to the facility. Uh, it was raining out. It's cold. February, early February, our rental car got a flat tire. And so we're out on the, on the highway changing this flat tire in the pouring rain. We're looking for the tools because it's a rental car. We're, we're wearing our suits and ties and, you know, just greasy and dirty and what, you know, sopping wet. And we left early enough that we could get there and practice and you know set up and put our computer up and the slide deck up and go through it a couple of times. 
But with the traffic and the rain and the flat tire and everything else, like we got there literally like two minutes before we were supposed to present. And so we show up in the lobby and they're like, hey, where have you guys been? Drenched to the bone, you know, and, and Dave Zot comes out and he's like, you guys look like hell. I'm like, I know, Dave, thanks. Where do we go? He's like, okay, well, you're up in like literally two minutes. Um, so we ran in there, put our uh, computer up and we presented to the team. And uh, at the end of our presentation, Rex Ryan said, you know what? Congratulations. You just won a contract with the New York Jets. And so that was wow. our first, uh, first contract we ever received, first client. And uh, I know we competed against uh, a number of other companies similar to Mission Six Zero, and um, we're happy to win that. Amazing. How'd that feel? That was one of the greatest uh, feelings I've ever had, to be honest with you. Like knowing I that bet. we landed that client right out of the gate, starting a business, it kind of validated a lot of my confidence and it was just fun to celebrate with my team. You know, that's what excited me the most to like look into the faces of the guys on the team and say, Hey, we got this contract. You know, we don't know what we're doing. You know, we said we we're going to do a lot of things. Now let's actually do those things. Let's figure this out. And that was really fun. I love it. Okay. We're going to change gears a little bit. I want to talk to you um, about your personal life just a little bit, kind of get into the mindset of how you think both in your former military career, as well as your, your civilian career now as an entrepreneur. But first, let me ask you, uh, I guess a general question. What is the one rule that you have for yourself that you'll never break? Wow. That's a great question. I guess earlier in my life, I would say that I don't live by rules or make rules because rules are made to be broken. You know, that's kind of the rebel in me, the, <laughs> the yep. insurrectionist. Um, I think right now is what I'd say to myself is I will never put myself in a position to let my family down. I, I think that's kind of the rule that I live by right now. Okay. Weird question alert. What is an unusual or absurd thing? that you love? I, for food wise, I absolutely love Napa Valley green olives. Interesting. Like those are the best, probably the best food on earth. Like I could eat bottles and bottles of those. Like they're just incredible. My wife hates them and we <laughs> gave them to my kids to, to taste and they devour them. Like just really? like, me. so I'm like, yes, like they take after me with the olives. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So you have some kind of olive DNA. That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because my dad forced black olives on me when I was a kid and I hated black olives. He loves them. So the, so the rebel goes green. For whatever reason, I tried green olives five years ago and I was like, oh my God, these are amazing. These are the best, the best things I've ever had in my life. Fantastic. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Oh man, I've, I love that question. I've traveled all over the world. I've been on every continent except for Antarctica. And I'm planning to do that next year with James Lawrence. Mm -hmm. He's uh, the Iron Cowboy. He's 50 Ironman mm -hmm. races and 50 consecutive days in all 50 states. And he's going to do an Ironman down in Antarctica. And uh, I'm going to go down there with him and run with them if everything works out. And I'm sure it will. Um, but if I were to go anywhere and spend one month, two places I have in mind, I've never been before in my life that I've always wanted to go. One is Rome, a huge Roman history fan. I've been to Italy several times, but I've never been to Rome. 
Mm-hmm. And then second is Israel. Never been to Israel. And so if I have to choose, you got to spend one month somewhere, I would go to Israel. I would absolutely forego all the, the canned tourism and I would just mm-hmm. go native and just live and learn and just walk and just see places and, and go places and, and just have that one month Israel experience. I think that would be incredible. That's great. I just did that last year. It was great. It was great. We did Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. It was really life-changing. So you'll, you'll love it when you get there. Awesome. Yep. If you can only go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? Oh, wow. A couple of things. Like if it were a fast food restaurant, it would probably be five guys, you know, great. I love great. The five guys burgers, you know, but five guys started the first ever restaurant was in Virginia, right by my house. And my dad and I used to go there to the first restaurant. And we used to think, oh, this is such a hidden gem. When people come into town, we'll take them to five guys. This is our restaurant. And then it franchised out and exploded. And it was kind of awesome to see that happen. But I, I just kind of the, uh, the nostalgia, you know, of, of five guys would be, be cool. I recently had a steak. It was like a $60 steak at Christopher's Prime Steakhouse in Salt Lake City. I know they have franchises as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you were to say, Jason, you're dying tomorrow, you got one last meal, I would get a steak from Christopher's Prime. And then on the way home, I'd get a Five Guys burger. <laughs> if you're going out, you're going out well. Going meat, okay. I'm a meat eater, right? <laughs> I see that. I see that. Okay. Are there any particular routines or tools or anything that you use to rejuvenate or decompress yourself? You know, you've got a very busy schedule, wife, children, et cetera. What have you built into your schedule to help recharge the batteries? Yeah, that's a great question. Funny enough, growing up, I played some video games and the video game that I enjoyed the most was Madden football. And so I played that quite a bit um, until I went to the army, to the military, and I kind of stopped playing it because I just didn't have the time and and everything. But my 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 wife bought me an Xbox like six years ago. And one of the games that she got for me was Star Wars Battlefront. Mm-hmm. And I started playing that and I'm terrible at those shooter games. Like it's like people would think like, oh, you're a Green Beret. You're good at like Call of Duty and things like that. Like when I'm on playing the computer games, like my, my rifle's going all up and down. I can't focus. I can't, you know, it's like, it's terrible. And I, and it was uh, a cold winter and for whatever reason, I just started playing, playing that game. And I used to play it so much. And, uh, and, I, and I quit it. And I said, listen, I, I play this game way too much. So I stopped playing video games entirely. I haven't played a game in like four and a half years. You know? But I said to myself, once all my businesses are successful and I've exited and I've made money and I can relax again, I'm going to play Star Wars Battlefront again because I enjoyed it so much. But kind of growing up in my household, we watched a lot of TV. The TV was kind of always on and it was soothing. It was comforting. And being single in the military for as long as I was, and I got married when I was 40 years old, you know, when you're coming back to your, your house, your apartment or whatever, it's, it's lonely. You know, it's a lonely life. You know, even when you go back to your, your chew or your barracks room or wherever you're staying in combat, 
you know, it's, it's pretty lonely, you know, and what I've kind of grown accustomed to is just turning on the TV and just letting it kind of soothe and comfort me almost like hypnosis. And I guess some shows that I really enjoyed watching throughout the years were Arrested Development um, prior to when they went on Netflix because the Netflix Arrested Development series is absolutely God awful. But the first three seasons are amazing. And then The Office, I watched the hell out of The Office, man. And so if I have to decompress and just kind of turn my brain off, I'll turn on one of those two shows and just, just veg out. I love it. Okay. Well, we are going to wrap it up with one last question. What one question would you like to ask me? Oh, okay. Well, that's a great turnaround. This has been a lot of fun. This is, thanks for having me on the show. I want to ask you this. Why do you do what you do? Because as entrepreneurs who largely are the, the, uh, the demographic that listen to the show, they spend so much of their time trying to work hard. Uh, many of them create an exit. And when I interview people who've had an exit, they say, I wish I, had worked so, I wish I didn't work as hard. And I wish I spent more time with my family. And some of them got sick. Some of them got cancer. Some of them had a heart attack. Some of them gained weight. Some of them got divorced. Um, many of them did not experience um, life in a way that they would have wanted to experience it. So in the show, what I try and do is talk about entrepreneurship and give them what they want, which is you know, tips, tricks, and strategies to help them to grow their business, but to also make them aware of the fact that tomorrow's not promised and today is what we have. And if there's something inside of them that is veering them in a different direction for a moment to take some time off, or if they're their daughter or their son or their small child comes into the room and wants two minutes with them, that these distractions that they're viewing as distractions are really life. And they really need to take the time to embrace them and not only climb the mountain. So the show is is there as a reminder for them to look at all the areas of their life, not just work, but health and relationships and spirituality and you know, uh, and all the sub modalities like meditation and stretching and, you know, weird things like myofascial release for your body, anything that I can come up with that I think is going to improve an area that is not only related to work. And then uh, a couple of times a year, I take them on, uh, I take 20 uh, high level entrepreneurs around the world on uh, different kinds of experiences. Like we just got back from truffle hunting in Tuscany. And before that, we were vintage car riding. Uh, in the south of France. And before that, we rented uh, where I met Kevin Flake, where we rented uh, TB12 and uh, Tom Brady's trainer shut the facility down for us to train us on how to do it. So it's really, uh, it's really a mission of mine to have people who are entrepreneurially based work hard, but also play hard. Now that's a home run answer. That's a, I should stand up and give you some applause for that one. That's fantastic. Drop the mic, huh? Yeah, that's a that's a mic drop right there. I'd love to get involved <laughs> with you with with those things, man. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Um, let's talk after the show about what that could look like. Yep. The only other thing I'd offer is, you know, uh, my company. We have a book, Deliberate Discomfort. 
So right now we've sold nearly 18,000 copies in the last three months when we launched. So you can get it on Amazon. You know, our ebook is out this week. It's 99 cents. Next week, it'll be $9.99. Our audio book will be out in two weeks. And then our masterclass that we're creating will be out in, um, in mid-June. And so that's what we have going on, trying to cope with the coronavirus pandemic and trying to pivot and, and do better. Um, but that's hopefully the, uh, the audience is inspired and interested in, in picking up a copy of, of whatever makes sense for them. I'd love that. If you could send me the links to um, all of those, we'll make sure that we link everything up in the show notes so that they can click right over to it. Will do. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate that. Okay. All right, brother. Thank you so much. That was an awesome interview. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 